Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day that we get to hear your gospel proclaimed. We thank you that you are a God who doesn't leave us, but comes to us and welcomes us and transforms us. Lord, we're asking that during this time you do the work only you can do, where you take all of our lives from wherever they are and you turn them into your spirit, that you transform us, that you open our ears and our hearts, that you let there be less of me so there can be more of you. You let this time be about your Holy Spirit doing work only you can do. We pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior and Lord. Amen. Season of Lent has begun. You see the purple. Maybe you are here for Ash Wednesday or for Mardi Gras. Um, we're going to leave up the communion rails during this season of Lent for us to come forward and to kneel down to receive communion. Uh, things change. Lent is a season of 40 days before Easter. So you take Palm Sunday and you go 40 days before that, not including Sundays, and you get what Lent is. Now, Easter is moving, which is why Lent always moves, and just so you can kind of tuck this away, Easter is always the, um, the first Sunday after the first full moon after spring. Okay? So that makes total sense. So that's where Easter lands, and then from Easter you go back and you get Lent. Lent is a season of repentance. Lent is a season of us focusing on carrying our cross as we look forward to Holy Week carrying, that Christ carrying his cross. We, re, we will intentionally be singing songs that are more meditative. The service will have a more meditative feeling. We've locked up the word Alleluia in the box and we're waiting to release it on Easter. And we take this time to pause and to reflect. And during this season, I have been um, for probably about a year now, just wanting to explore the idea of idols. We have a Wednesday Bible study that is a intensive Bible study that's been together for about three and a half years now. And what we do is take this disciple curriculum. And last year, the first semester was the prophets. So first semester, the prophets. Second semester was the letters of Paul. And I've taught this Bible study, I don't know, a number of times. Let's say five times. And every time you come to the prophets and about week 10 of 16, you feel like you are just slogging through. And the, the energy in the room is like, again, we have to read the prophets. And I see some of you who've been there. And it's just, it's exhausting. And here's why it's exhausting. You come to these prophets and over the course of, you know, 400 years, these different prophets were written, but they're saying the same thing. You people, you keep doing the same things, turning yourself away from me, going and doing your own things. I'm eventually going to come down and judge you. Stop. And then they keep doing it. And you're reading it sometimes more poetically, sometimes more bluntly, sometimes more directly, other times more indirectly, sometimes through a story or a parable, other times just right on. And you're just going, oh my gosh, can they get it already? And, and the people's problem there's two major issues. The first is we don't take care of the poor. People of God, why are you forsaking the poor? You don't see them. You don't give up resources to help them. Why are you not taking care of the poor? And the second issue that comes up in the prophets over and over and over again is you're worshiping false idols. You're letting idols into your life. And there's the temptation when you hear that to think, oh yeah, well, they worshiped false idols. Because they, you know, there's a great passage from Isaiah, right, um, where he says, you know, 
He plants, he cuts down cedars or chooses a home tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it can be used as fuel. Part of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. Then he makes a god and worships it, makes a carved image and bows down before it. Half of it burns in the fire. Over this he roasts meat, eats and be satisfied. He also warms himself, says, ah, I am warm. I can feel the fire. The rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And we think, yeah, that's idol worship, right? Carving a god out of wood. That's idol worship, and and we don't do that anymore. Now, there are times idol worship is more obvious. There are times it is just blatant in your face. For me, I was doing a world religions class. And in the world religions class, and this was up in the Bay Area, we would go in different visit some different um, religious places. And this one Friday in particular, we were supposed to go and visit a mosque. And so I got there and we go to this mosque and in mosques, men and women can't be together. And so they split you up. Our professor was a woman. And so she and the women went downstairs and me and a couple of other guys in the class went upstairs. It's a class of like 15. So it's probably five or six of us. And we got there early, and in the opening of it, and as the room started to fill up, um, it was still pretty easy to kind of be in the back and observe and just be a part of this. Well, the room got packed. There was no space left in the room. And eventually, some of the guys um, just took us, because there was no place to get to be, and kind of put us in prayer lines with them. And now, I'm, I'm thinking about what it would be for um, a, a Muslim student to come into our church service and worship with us. And one of the things that I would hope is that they'd be respectful, right, of what we're doing here and observant and those things. Um, and I, so I'm thinking, okay, Lord, how am I a good witness of your love to these people right now? They know I'm an outsider. They know I'm a Christian, but I don't want to be disrespectful of them. And on the other side of my brain, I had God saying, Thou shalt not worship false idols. Thou shalt not worship false idols. And I'm going, oh, wow. I have these like things happening. Standing in line, and the way you pray, a uh, Muslim prays, is you stand, and then you kneel, and you repeat certain phrases, and then you eventually bow down with your face to the floor, and you come back up, and then you repeat this process in different ways. And so I'm, again, balancing, holding in tension these ideas. Showing the love of Jesus through respect of these people and not just coming in being the cruel outsider while also not worshiping false idols. And so when they knelt, I'm like, it would be really weird if I just stood over them all. That felt awkward and not respectful of them. And so I knelt down. But then when they bowed, my worship false idols brain went off. And I'm like, I can't bow. That does not feel right. And so I would just kind of kneel and pray pray to Yahweh God, pray to Jesus, and just just pray. And then stand back up with them and kneel. And that was how I balanced those things. In that moment, it was easy to know an idol, right? That is not our God. I should not worship that God. Okay, I have that. But we are good idol worshipers. It's tempting to try to put idols back in the time of the prophets when they took a tree and used half to bake their bread and the other half to bow down and worship. But that thing that's inside of them, that longs to make something and bow down and worship it, continues today. It doesn't stop 
at the New Testament. We, if we are honest with ourselves, have to admit that we are idol worshipers also. The people back then quickly worshipped idols. We quickly worship idols. Sometimes they're very obvious. But most of the time, they're subtle. They're sneaky. And my prayer for us over the, the time that we have together, this, this season of Lent, is that you, in your prayer, in your um, doing the book study with us, all those different things, will be revealed something new that you use as an idol in your life. That during this time, that if, if again, being honest with ourselves, being honest with the people of God, we all in this room have idols. Some of them were aware of, others were not. And I pray that during this season of repentance, we can become aware of what that idol is for us. Okay, so what's an idol? Well, let's start with Paul, Romans. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. The word that I want you all to kind of remember out of this in answering the question, what is an idol? Exchanged. Exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling. Exchanged. What is an idol? Anything we take off, when we take God off of his throne and we exchange it for something else. The living God, who is the creator of the universe, who longs to fill us with his Holy Spirit, who longs to be with us, who longs to give us the things that we need. And we say, nope. I'm going to look to this thing for security. I'm going to look to this thing for purpose. I'm going to look to this thing for safety. And we take God off the throne and we replace it with something. That is an idol. We exchange the glory of God for anything else. So how do we define an idol? Well, replacing God on his throne with anything else. This is why idol worship can be so subtle. Because idol worship can come through in such amazingly simple ways. Like, well, of course I should be a good parent. That's really important, being a good parent. Yes, it is really important. But it's not the most important. Of course I should be a good employee. Of course I need to have wealth to make sure that my family is safe and secure. None of those things are bad. But when they become the throne, when they live on the throne, they become the purpose. They give you purpose. Above everything else, they become an idol. This is why we have the opportunity to repent. Because they're sneaky and they're subtle. So why then are we such good idol worshipers? They were good back then in the days of the prophet. I would argue we're good today. Why? Why are we good idol worshipers? I think there's three components that live inside of all of us that make us this way. And I think they start, the roots are in good things. The first, we are created to be in relationship with God. And that necessarily means that we're worshipers. It is how we're made. 
We're created to be in relationship with God. One of my very favorite books, you've heard me mention it before, The Indwelling Life of Christ. It's a little book, 50 readings by a man named Major W. Ian Thomas. I give it out to whoever um, I'm just sitting with or talking with. It is absolutely incredible. So if you ever want to do a devotional, I would highly, highly recommend that devotional, The Indwelling Life of Christ. He makes a case early in that book that, um, and this is how he says it. He says, God gave animals instinct, right? And so, and he uses the example of a beehive, and I think it's a brilliant example. He says, the bees are born and they know what to do. If you're a worker bee, you fix up the beehive and the cells and you, you move the eggs and you take care of the honey, and that's what you do. If you're a honeybee, you go out, you get pollen, you bring the pollen back. If you're a queen bee, you lay eggs. You know your job. That is by instinct. Now, pretend that one day a worker bee decided he wanted to be the queen bee. Right? Wakes up and says, you know what? I'm done being the worker bee. I'm going to be the queen bee. Well, what's going to happen? Or the queen bee decides she wants to leave the nest and go and just, you know, binge watch Netflix all day. That's going to be her purpose now. It just shows. Or, or the, the, you know, the pollinating bee has a new job and decides I want to be a mosquito. That's, that's my new goal. What would happen to the beehive? It would collapse. It'd be chaos. Right? Why? Because they're not doing what they're supposed to do. What dictates them operating the way they're supposed to operate? Their instinct. No one taught them to be a worker bee or a pollinating bee or queen bee. They're born that way. God gave them instinct. And this is the brilliant move that Major Ian Thomas makes. He says, in the same way God gave animals instinct, God gave his spirit to humans. We are created to operate with and in his spirit. Now, we heard Genesis 3. The results of the fall were a destroyed relationship with God, a destroyed relationship with ourself, and a destroyed relationship with others. So if we've been cut off, destroyed, by our own choosing, the relationship with the Holy Spirit, what happens? Turn on CNN. Turn on Fox News. What happens? Each one goes their own way. Is it not brilliant to think of it as a beehive where every bee has decided to do their own thing? And what do we see? Chaos. World out of control. But we're built to be indwelled with his spirit. And so what Major Thomas does is he starts there and then he says and builds upon this, we are supposed to be, we have the opportunity to have his spirit living inside of us today. Easter, Pentecost, right? And so that's his argument. He wants to get us into that place of living in the spirit so that we can be utterly dependent upon him. Restoring that thing that's been destroyed by the grace of God. We're built to worship it means we want to worship. We want to have that relationship and we're just looking for it in all sorts of different places. But that instinct's inside of us. We're worshipers. So even people who are atheists, people who um, are secularists, people who are agnostic and say, well, I don't worship. They just don't worship Yahweh God. They worship something. It's just not the living God. And I think all of us who have atheistic, agnostic, secularist friends would say, oh, yeah, 
I see that. They worship their parenting, or they worship their job, or they worship their bank account, or they worship their vacation home. They worship. It's just not God. Okay. We're created for community. And this means that we want to be people who submit. You know, the problem with relationship is I don't always get my way. Right? I mean, let's just use the most simple example. If I want blank for dinner, I want it to be taco night for dinner, I have four other people in my house who have to also agree it's going to be taco night. I have one very important person who will determine it by whether she buys the ingredients for taco night. And then three other people, depending on their complaining level, if they're going to submit to taco night. Right? Relationship requires submission. That we have to be in this position of going, yeah, okay, taco night. But sometimes I don't get taco night. What is it? Meatball night or whatever night it is. And this is, the, this is what we are. We are people, though, who are built for relationships, so we're built for submission. We're, again, looking around for things that we can put in positions of authority, looking around for things that we can put on the throne. Because we're built that way. We want to be in a relationship. God said to the man, it's not good for you to be alone. And this is the real kicker. This is what messes it all up, right? So far, you're like, yeah, okay, that's okay. And then this happens. But each one of us also longs for autonomy. The reality and the hard part of sin in my life is that, yes, I agree that Emily's desires for dinner are important, but I really want it to go my way. Because I really want it to be taco night. And so we long for autonomy. We long to be able to make our own decisions and do our own things. And this is what's so great about an idol. When we have an idol, it, it really has no intrinsic power, like the living God has power. And so it can become something that I can put into the place of worship. I can put into the place of saying, yeah, I'm going to do a lot to make this happen, submitting but I still have control. Like let's just say my um, bank account becomes something that I um, am worshiping. You know, how much I have really determines my self-worth, and I'm willing to work really hard to get that number up higher and higher. But ultimately, who's in control? Me. Depends on how much I do. Am I going to go and pursue my education to get more Am I going to go to pursue a new job so I can get more? Am I going to um, play the stock market in this way or make that risk? But ultimately, that number is determined by me. And that's where idols leave us all the time. We're in charge. We're in control. And we love that. So then, what do we do with all of this? Why is it a problem? Here's why. Genesis 2. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water underneath the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now, what word jumps out at you in this text? When I've taught this to especially like youth or middle schoolers in confirmation class, the same question comes up almost every time. You know what it is? 
jealous God. Why? Does jealous, is that a positive word we use a lot? No, you're just being jealous. Don't be jealous. Oh, I'm being really jealous. It's a negative word. We use it all the time. But God is not negative. So calling God jealous really gets the goat of some people. And they just don't know what to do. And so this question comes up, well, what does this mean then? Here's why it's important that God is jealous. A jealous God enters creation at Christmas. A jealous God goes to the cross on Good Friday. A jealous God resurrects on Easter Sunday. If God did not care about you and was not passionate about you, he would have stayed up in heaven. He never would have come down. He never would have died for you. He never would have resurrected for you. Okay, you want to worship who you want to worship? That's fine. You do you. I'll do me up here in heaven amongst the angels and all of the great things. But the jealous God says, no, I don't want you to have a wandering eye. I don't want you to go around with all these different idols and worship them. It's not going to give you life. It's not going to give you what you need. I am what you need. I come down into creation so that I can be with you on Christmas. I walk the earth for 30 years, experience the temptation by the evil one. I go to the cross, experience the most agonizing death because I want to be with you and give you myself. It is good that God is jealous for us. It is good that we have a God who wants to be with us. And this is why idols are a problem. Because we have a God who so deeply desires you, he's willing to enter into creation, he's willing to go to the cross and be resurrected for you. That's why this is important. And praise the Lord He's jealous for me and for you. He doesn't stay up in heaven, but he believes and knows that he is what you need and that he will do anything to get that to you. And so he comes down, and so he dies, and so he was resurrected. So now, here we are at the beginning of Lent, and we're going to spend weeks talking about idols. We're going to have a wonderful book, um, book studies happening during Lent. My prayer for you this week in particular is that you allow yourself the time to sit with this question. First, acknowledging that you are an idol worshiper. You're no different than the people thousands of years ago. We all have idols. And then giving yourself a moment of grace Believing you have a jealous God who wants you, who wants to be with you, and that that's good. And then asking him, Lord, reveal to me the things I've made an idol. Reveal to me the things that I've worshipped that aren't you. Reveal to me the ways I've exchanged your glory for something else. And let's just see over the course of these 40 days what it's like to be honest with our wandering eyes and to be honest that God wants to be the center of our affections and what is keeping us from that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this room and this place. 
Lord, we acknowledge that we need your presence more than now than ever. Help us to be, f- be full of your spirit so that we can be found fully in you. Lord, transform us. And during this season of repentance and reflection, allow us to be authentic with where we are, that we desperately need you to show us, to love us, and to be with us. Amen.